At the beginning of Book 9 of the Odyssey, we need a little bit of orientation to know where we are. Odysseus is speaking to Lord Alcinous, who is the king of the Phaeacians, the people who live on the island where he was rescued, Odysseus was rescued, by Princess Nausicaa. Um, he is at a feast in King Al at Lord Alcinous's uh, palace, listening to a bard named Demodocus, who's telling stories, of course, about the Trojan War. I'm going to start on page 125, The Odyssey, Book 9. And Odysseus, his great mind teeming. My lord Alcinous, what could be finer than listening to a singer of tales such as Demodocus, with a voice like a god's? Nothing we do is sweeter than this, a cheerful gathering of all the people sitting side by side throughout the halls, feasting and listening to a singer of tales, the tables filled with food and drink, the server drawing wine from the bowl and bringing it around to fill our cups. For me, this is the finest thing in the world. But you have a mind to draw out of me my pain and sorrow and make me feel it again. Where should I begin and where end my story? Heaven has sent me many tribulations. I will tell you my name first so that you too will know who I am. And when I escape the day of my doom, I will always be your friend and host, though my home is far. I am Odysseus, great Laertes' son, known for my cunning throughout the world, and my fame reaches even to heaven. My native land is Ithaca, a sunlit island with a forested peak called Neraton, visible for miles. Many other islands lie close around her, Dulichion, Same, and wooded Zacynthus, off toward the sunrise. But Ithaca lies low on the evening horizon, a rugged place a good nurse of men. No sight is sweeter to me than Ithaca. Yes, Calypso, the beautiful goddess, kept me in her caverns, yearning to possess me, and Circe, the witch of Aeaea, held me in her halls and yearned to possess me, but they could not persuade me or touch my heart. Nothing is sweeter than your own country and your own parents, not even living in a rich house, not if it's far from family and home. But let me tell you, of the hard journey homeward Zeus sent me on when I sailed from Troy. So now Odysseus has taken the floor. He's um, taken over the place of Demodocus the Bard, and he is going to entertain the company by telling them of his adventures after the Trojan War. This is the first time that we hear Odysseus narrate for himself what has happened. From Ilion, that is, Troy, the wind took me to the Sicones in Ismaros. I pillaged the town and killed the men. The women and treasure that we took out I divided as fairly as I could among all hands and then gave the command to pull out fast. That was my order, but the fools wouldn't listen. They drank a lot of wine and slaughtered a lot of sheep and cattle on the shore. Some of the town's survivors got away inland and called their kinsmen. There were more of them, and they were braver, too, men who knew how to fight from chariots and on foot. They came on as thick as leaves and flowers in spring, attacking at dawn. We were out of luck, cursed by Zeus to suffer heavy losses. 
The battle lines formed along our beached ships, and bronze spears sliced through the air. As long as the day's heat climbed toward noon, we held our ground against superior numbers, but when the sun dipped down, Sikonis beat us down, too. We lost six fighting men from each of our ships. The rest of us cheated destiny and death. Note here, Odysseus says that they've lost six men from each of his ships. He has 12 ships at the beginning of the story. That means he's lost 30 men in this battle. We sailed on in shock, glad to get out alive, but grieving for our lost comrades. I wouldn't let the ships get underway until someone had called out three times for each mate who had fallen on the battlefield. And then Zeus hit us with a norther, a freak hurricane. The clouds blotted out land and sea, and night climbed up the sky. The ships pitched ahead. When their sails began to shred in the gale, gale force winds, we lowered them and stowed them aboard, fearing the worst, and rode hard for the mainland. We lay offshore two miserable days and nights. When dawn combed her hair on the thir in the third day's light, we set up the masts, hoisted the white sails, and took our seats. The wind and the helmsman steered the ships, and I would have made it home unscathed. But as I was rounding Cape Malia, the waves, the current, and the wind from the north drove me off course past Scythera Island. Nine days of bad winds blew us across the teeming seas. On the tenth day, we came to the island of the Lotus Eaters. We went ashore, and the crews lost no time in drawing water and preparing a meal beside their ships. After they had filled up on food and drink, I sent out a team, two picked men and a herald, to reconnoiter and sound out the locals. They headed out and made contact with the Lotus Eaters, who meant no harm, but did give my men some lotus to eat. Whoever ate that sweet fruit lost the will to report back, preferring instead to stay there munching lotus, oblivious of home. I hauled them back wailing to the ships, bound them under the benches, and then ordered all hands to board their ships on the double before anyone else tasted the lotus. They were aboard in no time and at their benches, churning the white sea white with their oars. We sailed on, our morale sinking, and we came to the land of the Cyclopes, lawless savages who leave everything up to the gods. These people neither plow nor plant, but everything grows for them unsown. Wheat, barley, and vines that bear clusters of grapes, watered by rain from Zeus. They have no assemblies or laws, but live in high mountain caves, ruling their own children and wives, and ignoring each other. A fertile island slants across the harbor's mouth, neither very close nor far from the Cyclopes' shore. It's well-wooded and populated with innumerable wild goats, uninhibited by human traffic. Not even hunters go there, tramping through the woods and roughing it on the mountainsides. It pastures no flocks, has no tilled fields, unplowed, unsown, virgin forever, bereft of men. All it does is support those bleeding goats. The Cyclopes do not sail and have no craftsmen to build them benched red-proud ships that could supply all their wants, crossing the sea to other cities, visiting each other as other men do. 
These same craftsmen would have made this island into a good settlement. It's not a bad place at all, and would bear everything in season. Meadows lie by the seashore, lush and soft, where vines would thrive. It has level plowland with deep, rich soil that would produce bumper crops season after season. The harbor's good, too. No need for moorings, anchor stones, or tying up. Just beat your ship until the wind is right and you're ready to sail. At the harbor's head, a spring flows clear and bright from a cave surrounded by poplars. There we sailed in, some god guiding us through the murky night. We couldn't see a thing. A thick fog enveloped the ships, and the moon wasn't shining in the cloud-covered sky. None of us could see the island or the long waves rolling toward the shore until we ran our ships onto the sandy beach. Then we lowered sail, disembarked, and fell asleep on the sand. Dawn came early with palmettos of rose, and we explored the island, marveling at it. The spirit women, daughters of Zeus, roused the mountain goats so that my men could have a meal. We ran to the ships, got our javelins and bows, formed three groups, and started to shoot. The god let us bag our game. Nine goats for each of the twelve ships, except for my ship, which got ten. So all day long, until the sun went down, we feasted on meat and sweet wine. The ships had not yet run out of the dark red each crew had taken aboard in large jars when we ransacked the Sicones' sacred city. And we looked across at the Cyclopes' land. We could see the smoke from their fires, and hear their voices, and their sheep and goats. When the sun set and darkness came on, we went to sleep on the shore of the sea. As soon as dawn brightened in the rosy sky, I assembled all the crews and spoke to them. The rest of you will stay here while I go with my ship and crew on reconnaissance. I want to find out what those men are like, wild savages with no sense of right or wrong, or hospitable folk who fear the gods. With that, I boarded ship and ordered my crew to get on deck and cast off. They took their places and were soon whitening the sea with their oars as we pulled in over the short stretch of water. There on the shoreline, we saw a high cave overhung with laurels. It was a place where many sheep and goats were penned at night. Around it was a yard fenced in by stones, set deep in the earth and by tall pines and crowned oaks. This was the lair of a huge creature, a man who pastured his flocks off by himself and lived apart from others and knew no law. He was a freak of nature, not like men who eat bread, but a, like a lone wood, wooded crag high in the mountains. I ordered part of my crew to stay with the ship and counted off the twelve best to go with me. I took along a goatskin filled with red wine, a sweet vintage I had gotten from Maron, Apollo's priest, on the island of Ismaros, where I spared both him and his wife and child out of respect for the god. He lived in a grove of Phoebus Apollo and gave me splendid gifts, seven bars of gold, a solid silver bowl, and twelve jars of wine, sweet and pure, a drink for the gods. Hardly anyone in his house, none of the servants, knew about this wine, just Maron, his wife, and a single housekeeper. Whenever he drank this sweet, dark red wine, he would fill one goblet and pour into it twenty parts of water and the bouquet that spread from the mixing bowl was so fragrant no one could hold back from drinking. I had a large skin of this wine, a sack of provisions, and a strong premonition that we had a rendezvous with a man of great might, a savage with no notion of right and wrong.
we got to the cave quickly. He was out, tending his flocks in the rich pasture land. We went inside and had a good look around. There were crates stuffed with cheese and pens crammed with lambs and kids, firstlings, midlings, and newborns in separate sections. The vessels he used for milking, pails and bowls of good workmanship, were brimming with whey. My men thought we should make off with some cheese and then come back for the lambs and kids, load them on board and sail away on the sea. But I wouldn't listen. It would have been far better if I had. But I wanted to see him and see if he would give me a gift of hospitality. When he did come, he was not a welcome sight. We lit a fire and offered sacrifice and helped ourselves to some of the cheese. Then we sat and waited in the cave until he came back, herding his flocks. He carried a huge load of dry wood to make a fire for his supper and heaved it down with a crash inside the cave. We were terrified and scurried back into a corner. He drove his fat flocks into the wide cavern, at least those that he milked, leaving the males, the rams, and the goats outside in the yard. Then he lifted up a great doorstone, a huge slab of rock, and set it in place. Two sturdy wagons, twenty sturdy wagons, couldn't pry it from the ground, That's how big the stone was, he set in the doorway. Then he sat down and milked the ewes and bleeding goats, all in good order, and put the sucklings beneath their mothers. Half of the white milk he curdled and scooped into wicker baskets. The other half he let stand in the pails so he could drink it later for his supper. He worked quickly to finish his chores, and as he was lighting the fire, he saw us and said, Who are you, strangers? Sailing the seas, huh? Where from and what for? Pirates, probably, roaming around causing people trouble. He spoke, and it hit us like a punch in the gut, his booming voice and the sheer size of the monster. But even so, I found the words to answer him. We are Greeks, blown off course by every wind in the world on our way home from Troy, traveling sea routes we never meant to, by Zeus's will, no doubt. We are proud to be the men of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, the greatest name under heaven, conqueror of Troy, destroyer of armies. Now we are here, suppliants at your knees, hoping you will be generous to us and give us the gifts that are due to strangers. Respect the gods, sir. We are your suppliants, and Zeus Zeus avenges strangers and suppliants, Zeus, god of strangers, who walks at their side. He answered me from his pitiless heart. You're dumb, stranger, or from far away if you ask me to fear the gods. Cyclopes don't care about Zeus or his aegis or the blessed gods, since we are much stronger. I wouldn't spare you or your man out of fear of Zeus. I would spare them only if I myself wanted to. But tell me, where did you leave your ship? Far down the coast or close? I'd like to know. Nice try. But I knew all the tricks and said, My ship? Poseidon smashed it to pieces against the rocks at the border of your land. He pushed her in close and the wind did the rest. These men and I escaped by the skin of our teeth. This brought no response from his pitiless heart, but a sudden assault upon my men. His hands reached out, seized two of them, and smashed them to the ground like puppies. Their brains spattered out and oozed into the dirt. He tore them limb from limb to make his supper, gulping them down like a mountain lion, leaving nothing behind, guts, flesh, or marrowy bones. 
Crying out, we lifted our hands to Zeus at this outrage, bewildered and helpless. When the Cyclops had filled his huge belly with human flesh, he washed it down with milk and stretched out in his cave among his flocks. I crept up close and was thinking about drawing my sharp sword and driving it home into his chest where the lungs hide the liver. I was feeling for the spot when another thought checked my hand. We would die to a man in that cave, unable to budge the enormous stone he had set in place to block the entrance. And so, groaning through the night, we waited for dawn. As soon as dawn came, streaking the sky red, he rekindled the fire and milked his flocks all in good order, placing the sucklings beneath their mothers. His chores done, he seized two of my men and made his meal. After he had fed, he drove his flocks out, easily lifting the great stone, which he then set back in place, as lightly as if he were setting a lid upon a quiver. And then with loud whistling, the Cyclops turned his fat flocks toward the mountain, and I was left there brooding on how I might make him pay and win glory from Athena. This was the best plan I could come up with. Beside one of the sheep pens lay a huge pole of green olive, which the Cyclops had cut to use as a walking stick when dry. Looking at it, we guessed it was about as large as the mast of a black ship, a 20 oared broad broad-beamed freighter that crosses the wide gulfs. That's how long and thick it looked. I cut off about a fathom's length from this pole and handed it over to my men. They scraped it and made it smooth, and I sharpened the tip and took it over to the fire and hardened it. Then I hid it, setting it carefully in the dung that lay in piles all around the cave, and I told my men to draw straws to decide which of them would have to share the risk with me, lift that stake and grind it in his eye while he was asleep. They drew straws and came up with the very men I myself would have chosen. There were four of them, and I made five. At evening he came, herding his fleecy sheep. He drove them straight into the cave, drove in all his flocks, in fact. Maybe he had some foreboding, or maybe some god told him to. Then he lifted the doorstone and set it in place, and sat down to milk the goats and bleeding ewes, all in good order, setting the sucklings beneath their mothers. His chores done, again, he seized two of my men and made his meal. Then I went up to the Cyclops and spoke to him, holding an ivy wood bowl filled with dark wine. Cyclops, have some wine now that you have eaten your human flesh, so you can see what kind of drink was in our ship's hold. I was bringing it to you as an offering, hoping you would pity me and help me get home. But you're a raving maniac. How do you expect any other man ever to visit you after acting like this? He took the bowl and drank it off, relishing every last sweet drop, and he asked me for more. Be a pal and get me another drink, and tell me your name so that I can give you a gift you'll like. Wine grapes grow in the Cyclopes' land, too. Rain from the sky makes them grow from the earth. But this, this is straight ambrosia and nectar. So I gave him some more of the ruby red wine. Three times the fool drained the bowl dry. And when the wine had begun to work on his mind, I spoke these sweet words to him. Cyclops, you ask me my name, my glorious name, and I will tell it to you. Remember now to give me the gift just as you promised. No man is my name. They call me no man, my mother, my father, and all my friends too. 
he answered me from his pitiless heart. No man I will eat last after his friends. Friends first, him last. That's my gift to you. He listed as he spoke and then fell flat on his back, his thick neck bent sideways. He was sound asleep, belching out wine and bits of human flesh in his drunken stupor. I swung into action, thrusting the stake deep in the embers, heating it up, and all the while talking to my men to keep up their morale. When the olive wood stake was about to catch fire, green though it was, and was really glowing, I took it out and brought it right up to him. My men stood around me, and some god inspired us. My men lifted up the olive wood stake and drove the sharp point right into his eye, while I, putting my weight behind it, spun it around, the way a man bores a ship's beam with a drill, leaning down on it while other men beneath him keep it spinning and spinning with a leather strap. That's how we twirled the fiery-pointed stake into the cyclops's eye. The blood formed a whirlpool around its searing tip. His lids and brow were all singed by the heat from the burning eyeball, and its roots crackled in the fire and hissed like an axe head, or adds, a smith dips into water when he wants to temper the iron. That's how his eye sizzled and hissed around the olive wood stake. He screamed, and the rock walls rang with his voice. We shrank back in terror while he wrenched the blood-grimed stake from his eye and flung it away from him, blundering about and shouting to the other Cyclopes who lived around him in caves among the windswept crags. They heard his cry and gathered from all sides around his cave and asked what ailed him. Polyphemus, why are you hollering so much and keeping us up the whole blessed night? Is some man stealing your flocks from you or killing you maybe by some kind of trick? And Polyphemus shouted out to them, No man is killing me by some kind of trick. They sent their words winging back to him. If no man is hurting you, then your sickness comes from Zeus and can't be helped. You should pray to your father, Lord Poseidon. They left then, and I laughed in my heart at how my phony name had fooled them so well. Cyclops, meanwhile, was groaning in agony. Groping around, he removed the doorstone, and sat in the entrance with his hands spread out to catch anyone who went out with the sheep, as if I could be so stupid. I thought it over, trying to come up with the best plan I could to get us all out from the jaws of death. I wove all sorts of wiles, as a man will when his life is on the line. My best idea had to do with the sheep that were there, big, thick-fleeced beauties with wool dark as violets. Working silently, I bound them together with willow branches the cyclops slept on. I bound them in threes. Each middle sheep carried a man underneath, protected by the two on either side, three sheep to a man. As for me, there was a ram, the best in the flock. I grabbed his back and curled up beneath his shaggy belly. There I lay, hands twined into the marvelous wool, hanging on for dear life. And so, muffling our groans, we waited for dawn. When the first streaks of red appeared in the sky, the rams started to bolt toward the pasture. The unmilked females were bleeding in the pens, their udders bursting. Their master, worn out with pain, felt along the backs of all the sheep as they walked by, the fool, unaware of the men under their fleecy chests. The great ram headed for the entrance last, heavy with wool and with me, 
thinking hard. Running his hands over the ram, Polyphemus said, My poor ram, why are you leaving the cave last of all? You've never lagged behind before. You were always the first to reach the soft grass with your big steps, first to reach the river, first to want to go back to the yard at evening. Now you're last of all. Are you sad about your master's eye? A bad man blinded me, him and his nasty friends getting me drunk. No man, but he's not out of trouble yet. If only you understood and could talk, you could tell me where he's hiding. I would smash him to bits and spatter his brains all over the cave. Then I would find some relief from the pain this no good, no man has caused me. He spoke and sent the ram off through the door. When we had gone a little way from the cave, I first untangled myself from the ram and then untied my men. Then, moving quickly, we drove those fat, long-shanked sheep down to the ship, keeping an eye on our rear. We were a welcome sight to the rest of the crew, but when, when they started to mourn the men we had lost, I forbade it with an upward nod of my head, signaling each man like that and ordering them to get those fleecy sheep aboard instead, on the double, and get the ship out to sea. Before you knew it, they were on their benches, beating the sea to white froth with their oars. When we were offshore but still within earshot, I called out to the Cyclops just to rub it in. So Cyclops, turns out it wasn't a coward who you, whose men you murdered and ate in your cave, you savage. But you got yours in the end, didn't you? You had the gall to eat the guests in your own house, and Zeus made you pay for it. He was even angrier when he heard this. Breaking off the peak of a huge crag, he threw it toward our ship, and it carried to just in front of our dark prow. The sea billowed up where the rock came down, and the backwash pushed us to the mainland again, like a flood tide setting us down at shore. I grabbed a long pole and shoved us off, nodding to the crew to fall on the oars and get us out of there. They leaned into it, and when we were twice as far out to sea as before, I called to the Cyclops again with my men hanging all over me and begging me not to. Don't do it, man. The rock that hit the water pushed us in, and we thought we were done for. If he hears any sound from us, he'll heave half a cliff at us and crush the ship and our skulls with one throw. You know he has the range. They tried, but didn't persuade my hero's heart. I was really angry, and I called back to him, Cyclops, if anyone, any mortal man, asks you how you got your eye put out, tell him that Odysseus the Marauder did it, son of Laertes, whose home is in Ithaca. He groaned and had this to say in response. Oh no! Now it's coming to me, the old prophecy. There was a seer here once, a tall, handsome man, Telemos Eurymedes. He prophesied well all his life to the Cyclopes. He told me that all this would happen someday, that I would lose my sight at Odysseus's hands. I always expected a great hero would come here, strong as can be. Now this puny little good-for-nothing runt has put my eye out because he got me drunk. But come here, Odysseus, so I can give you a gift and ask Poseidon to help you on your way. I'm his son, you know. He claims he's my father. He will heal me if he wants, but none of the other gods will, and no mortal man will. 
He spoke, and I shouted back to him, I wish I were as sure of ripping out your lungs and sending you to hell as I am, dead certain that not even the earth shaker will heal your eye. I had my say, and he prayed to Poseidon, stretching his arms out to starry heaven. Hear me, Poseidon, blue-maned earth holder, if you are the father you claim to be. Grant that Odysseus, son of Laertes, may never reach his home on Ithaca. But if he is fated to see his family again and to return to his home and his own native land, may he come late, having lost all companions, in another ship and find trouble at home. He prayed, and the blue-maned sea god heard him. Then he broke off an even larger chunk of rock, pivoted and threw it with incredible force. It came down just behind our dark cold ship, barely missing the end of the rudder. The sea billowed up where the rock hit the water, and the wave pushed us forward, all the way to the island where our other ships waited, clustered on the shore, ringed by our comrades, sitting on the sand, anxious for our return. We beached the ship and unloaded the Cyclops' sheep, which I divided up as fairly as I could among all hands. The veterans gave me the great ram, and I sacrificed it on the shore of the sea to Zeus in the high clouds who rules over all. I burnt the thigh pieces, but the god did not accept my sacrifice, brooding over how to destroy all my benched ships and my trusty crews. So all the long day, until the sun went down, we sat feasting on meat and drinking sweet wine. When the sun set and darkness came on, we lay down and slept on the shore of the sea. Early in the morning, when the sky was streaked red, I roused my men and ordered the crews to get on deck and cast off. They took their places and were soon whitening the sea with their oars. We sailed on in shock, glad to get away alive, but grieving for the comrades we had lost. Thank you.